Welcome, everyone, to episode six of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Shurek. Today, we're going to be talking to Rachel Rucker, the author of East Winds. Rachel, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming on. It's going great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and let us know who you are and and how how did I come to get your book? Yeah, so um, I'll yeah I'll talk with the first one first. So I am a writer, editor, and teacher based in Boston, and I'm also a seventh generation Utah. I recently graduated from Columbia with my MFA in nonfiction. And so I think that's really how I found you is as soon as I first joined Book Talk, I was, and I'll, I'll do a caveat, I love all genres. I love reading all genres, but nonfiction has a really special, I think, power. And there wasn't really anyone championing nonfiction the way that you do. So like my very first day of Book Talk, I immediately found you. And it's, um, and it's been uphill of all the good things since. So yeah, so my thesis in graduate school was East Winds, my first book, a memoir that came out six months ago. It took eight years, my whole heart to write. And I'm just really grateful for the chance to talk about it with you. So thanks for having me. Before we get into the book, I, I do have a question because I, I wasn't familiar that you did the MFA at uh, Columbia. You said Columbia, yeah. right? Uh, I think the head of the nonfiction program at Columbia is Leslie Jameson. Is she still there? She's one of my favorite writers of all time. <laughs> She's still there. She's yeah, Leslie's wonderful. Leslie, she was my she was my thesis advisor. Um Wendy S. Walters, who is phenomenal, um, is currently the chair. But Leslie is still around and as wonderful as you could imagine in person too. <laughs> and it's like is like on my list of like there's like four or five writers that I'm fine meeting everyone else. I don't really get starstruck, but like Leslie's on my list of like maybe I don't want to meet her just because I'd be like fumbling over my words and like hi, hi, I'm so excited to She'll meet put you, you immediately just... at ease. Yeah, no, we'll we'll, we'll we'll talk <laughs> offline about how to make this dream come true. She's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rachel, your book is called East Winds: A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. I love the tagline you got for this book. Uh, a lot of books don't have taglines anymore, it seems, but this uh, this one I think is really great. It's Mormon Married Mother, The End. And I'll read the description here. Rachel panicked when she lay awake the first night of her year-long honeymoon, a backpacking trip around the world. Though young and in love, she wasn't sure she actually believed in marriage, let alone the lofty Mormon idea of eternal marriage. The unconventional honeymoon felt like a brief reprieve from a crushing expectations for a Mormon bride. But this trip also offered opportunities— the chance to study wedding traditions in other cultures, and the space to confront what marriage, including her own, meant to her. Along the way, she got kicked out of Peru, escaped rabid dogs in the Amazon, stumbled upon democracy protests in Hong Kong, launched an unlucky, uh, unlucky lantern in Thailand, and trekked 500 miles across Spain in sandals. These experiences helped Rachel confront her tumultuous past, question her inherited relationship models, and embrace her restless nature within marriage— exchanging faith and certainty for faith in day-to-day choice of partnership and faith in herself. More of a travelogue, this sweeping coming-of-age memoir offers insights into the complex, universal institution. Too many love stories end with marriage. This one starts there instead. What a great descriptor of a book, and, and it really just summarizes exactly kind of what this book is about and and all of the different ways that this book is so different than a lot of other memoirs. There's not that many memoirs of marriage that I've ever read and kind of the process that you went through with, you know, questioning, I think, the tenets of religion and impairing with it with like the global questioning that you have and 
how other cultures and faiths and people have processed their own marriages was just such a really explorative look at something that I think we all think about all the time is like our love life and our marriage and and those types of things. And so getting kind of that introspective look while also being a fun travel book is a really unique thing. And uh, a year long honeymoon, I, I think that's only something that I've heard of from like TikTok van life people. Right. So that was just a really fun <laughs> thing to read about. I really enjoyed this one. And I, I'm just curious, what was the what was the inspiration that got you to like like have the idea to do this year long honeymoon. So right out of college, I became a high school teacher and it was a really rewarding and really tough experience in a lot of ways. And so I was just living off of like, you know, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich life and squirreled away every penny that I had because I I had this dream of traveling the world. And I thought like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put in my 18 hour days and then I'll have, you know, this at the end of it, I'm going to teach for two years and then I'll do this. And so I've been traveling ever since I was quite young. I was kicked out of my house when I was 15. And so really ever since I've sort of been on the road and identified as a wanderer, I'm in this way. Traveling always burst open my world in the best of ways and reminded me what a speck of little dust I am in the world and like that liberating (laughs) way as well. And so I crave something like that um, after this really harrowing work time. And then one thing led to another, and during those two years of teaching, I met Austin, and he wanted to come. So off we went. We circumnavigated the globe, starting in South America, um, Asia, and then Europe. And I think you know part of the project was since marriage and ambivalence about long-term partnership was so top of mind for me, I wanted to apply my anthropology background to study what this seemingly universal institution meant and other cultures and see if I can make sense of sort of my own trauma and anxiety and the many, many scripts, um, you know, growing up Mormon or, you know, in the United States that were heaped upon me. Well, both, I mean, we grew up in in kind of different faiths, but like in a very similar way of in in your Mormon faith. And I grew up in a like a very heavily evangelical faith where marriage, especially from a young age, is just kind of expected. That is your, your life is kind of scripted before you you know, like when I went off to college, it was kind of the purpose of going to college was to find a spouse in some way. And a lot of a lot of my classmates in high school found spouses in high school, you know, is people getting married after six months of engagement, or, you know, people rushing to get married in the last final year of college. And these expectations, they certainly just kind of dictate how you perceive other people, especially Absolutely. at a like a young age that you are basically like looking at specifically in these environments, you you just look at the opposite sex as just potential partners. And it's a really kind of, in some way, just a really harsh way to view and, and also be perceived, because I think that's also something that you're always consumed with is like how people are expecting you to behave or act or present in so many different ways, because you know that's on their mind as well. And so much of the relationships in some sense in these environments become so performative because of that overarching expectation. Totally. At these ages, you know, even, you know, thinking, I mean, yeah, um, if you're, if you've been told that this is the goal, you know, all your life, it, it really does. Like, you know, at these ages where you're supposed to be kind of figuring out what you're about and what you, you want, you know, to be thinking about the, it, it's, it's really tricky. And in fact, the, the first, um, the dedications of my book is just a litany of um, sort of this collage echoey experience um, of, of real people that I know who, 
experience this. And so, you know, here's just an example of the first one. It says, for the 16-year-old who felt concerned about where to attend college, only to be told by her boyfriend, it doesn't matter where you go. You'll only need your degree if your husband dies. You know, and so and it goes on, on like that, where, you know, these... Um, these things, yeah, they have an effect. And I appreciate you sharing your experience. Yeah, it's it's formative. I want to get into the the title and the subtitle of your book, East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. Something I like to ask, because I think a lot of the people that are going to listen to this podcast maybe are not totally familiar with the fact that a lot of writers do not get to pick the title and subtitle of their books. Uh, was this a choice that you made? Was this um, or Was this something that the publisher wanted to go with? What was that like? Yeah, um, more or less like these were my titles that I picked. So that was fortunate. Um, East Winds is a wind phenomenon that happens in Davis County, Utah, where I grew up. And it was one of my first memories. I was like a little kid holding my pigtails outside in this, you know, and it's like a hurricane type wind storm. And I was so worried about blowing away. And kind of one of the great ironies of the book is like I... um, I did, <laughs> you know, and, and so it, the wind <laughs> kind of represents this, um, this restless nature and sort of um, my, my fear about that and learning to embrace that. And so it's very metaphorical in that way. And I think also wind is invisible. Um, and so I think our job as writers is to make visible those invisible currents and pressures. And so, and so that worked. I went back and forth a lot on the subtitle, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. Marriage, ambivalence, and my, you know, anthropological investigations were certainly a big part of the book, but I worry that the subtitle actually limits it because especially by like, you know, the last third of the book, you know, I'm no longer asking questions about marriage so much as I am realizing it's so much bigger than that. It's like, what is success? What is happiness? What does it mean to live a life according to your own terms and not the stories and scripts handed to you. And so, yeah, there could have been many other subtitles. Of, and, you know, it's just kind of a general coming of age universal story in that way. But yeah, we'll, we'll see for the next book if I get to keep the title. It's so <laughs> frustrating at these titles, especially for essays. Those, those ones are tough. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm kind of going through a little bit of the process myself of like framing a whole book through a title and then realizing like the title could change last minute. Like maybe this is not the, the best way to like approach my writing Hold tight, style. hold tight. You've got it. <laughs> I do want to ask, and I, I think we've already alluded to it as just kind of this predetermined thing within growing up in the religion is, uh, but what made you want to focus on marriage for this book? Because it, it easily could have just been, you know, kind of drop the anthropology and you just have a, you have a travel memoir, you know, a, a standard travel memoir that with your great writing could have still been a, a really fun story, but kind of the backbone of this story and what kind of separates it from a lot of other things in the genre is this anthropological view and dissection of marriage. So what was the driving force that made you want to focus on marriage? Yeah, you know, I think for me, writing this book didn't even so much feel like a choice. It's just like, I had to write this book, even if, you know, I mean, it's since, you know, it's certainly not a journal entry, but you know, like I had to come to terms with this gripping, terrifying fear that by getting married, I was somehow like literally dying. It was all consuming. It was, you know, trauma, you know, different, different things go off for different people. For me, whatever reason, like the marriage narrative is what really awoken me from an early age and, and became an obsession. So, so yeah, you know, there's definitely this, um, 
this internal and the external frame story. And I think especially at first, it was the external that was maybe more obvious where, you know, I've got this frame story. I'm this jaded millennial who, you know, wants to research these things. And I'm weary of the models that were presented to me and feeling like the harm in their simplicity. But yeah, it, it, it took more drafts to realize that like that internal story and realizing my own kind of experiences growing up and getting kicked out of my mom's house and what I had been taught, you know, that those were just as important to include. And so um, it is a, an interesting sort of genre. And it, it took so many years, five years to find the structure to be able to fit all these pieces in. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, um, who is the, the person who's credited with that one famous quote of well-behaved women seldom make history. Um, she yeah. was kind enough to blurb the book. Uh, let me look at the back of the book here. She says, <laughs> she says, is it ethnography, a travelogue, a memoir, a love story, or a true confession, whatever its genre, that's funny, insightful, poetic, and engaging? And so if Laurel Thatcher Ulrich wielding her, you know, Pulitzer Prize doesn't know what genre <laughs> is, I guess I won't try to slot it into one either. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I think that's that's a, a really great thing because uh, there's some books that I think are like almost esoteric in nature that you're like, what genre are they? And you're like, I don't know. And maybe they should have figured that out. <laughs> like you just feel kind of a harshness towards the author's meandering. But with your book, it's like, I don't know what genre it is because it it touches on so many different things, but in a really positive light, in a way that like each little subgenre that is kind of all meshed together in the story, they all feel like they're part of a whole, which is, uh, I mean, ultimately like what a good completed book should be is all the, all the different sections lining up. Speaking of just not being um, a super easy to define genre book, I'm curious if you had any like literary inspirations for this. Were there any books that along the way either helped you realize like, oh, you had to write this book or were great resources for like thinking through the language and the topics and those types of things? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't have any very specific exact models for what I was looking for. And I think that's why it took me so long to find the structure. But I'm a huge mm -hmm. fan of Tara Westover's Educated. Um and so yeah. my memoir really kind of sits at the intersection of Educated, Cheryl Strayed's Wild, and Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, book called Committed that's about her marriage ambivalence. And so I made a very scientific Venn diagram that's like on my Instagram yeah. of like kind of like why all these <laughs> intersect between like family baggage, really, really long tracks and marriage, you know, all that stuff. But in the book itself, it's fun to like look at, answer this question in a retrospect. You know, the book itself, I'm noticing that there were so many literary influences along the way just in my life, whether it lots of poetry, um, The Name by Don Marquis, Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke, um, queer poet Amy Lowell's A Decade, what like um, that she's got an incredible poem that um, is a centerpiece in one of my chapters. And then, you know, anytime you're going to walk 500 miles across a country in sandals, you know, Don Quixote and Tolkien, you know, these um, these other companions are with me certainly the whole way. That's so cool. I am curious about uh, just because it's an expansive book. I'm curious, how was the, the first draft? I have to think it was pretty different than the finished copy, at least maybe not even the first draft you sent to publishers, but the first draft you were working on. I'm curious if it was more focused on the travel or more focused on the marriage components, or was it kind of something altogether different? I, I, I'm just, I would love to know kind of how the book came to be. 
my first draft is maybe like 3% of what it is now. Um, <laughs> when I came home, I got really excited about, about writing this and it was, it was too much of the external story. And I also like, it was, it was both a blessing and a curse that I took very detailed field journals. Um, and so, you know, I kind of just was like, okay, you know, here's what happened to me. I'm just going to bring that into more vivid language. And, and, and no, that's not how you write a book. You have to, you know, especially with a memoir, you really have to kind of make some hard choices about like what stays, what um, is not there. So my first draft, I like to joke was the like what happened draft. And then it took, yeah, it took those seven years to to get to the what it meant draft and to really, you know, sit and have the distance. My first draft, like I laugh so hard now, it was like, I, I didn't even want to go there with the Mormon stuff, like, because it's like, especially with my writing and writing in kind of more like literary genre, like there's always just like something like really wildly triggering about saying Mormon, like people are suddenly like, whoa, got to explain that, you know, and yeah. so I was like, I'm not even going to go there. And so it's like, I got married in a religious ceremony in a white building. And it's so funny to think about that now, because yeah, my Mormon upbringing, what I was taught about marriage about and not being like, so it like important, but also essential for my salvation was like, so core to everything going on. But yeah, it took me a while to be able to put those pieces into play. And I'm and I'm glad I went there. It made it more difficult to publish in a way, but I didn't and couldn't erase my identity to be able to yeah. tell the complete story. No, I think that's that's really interesting. And I we've talked about it a little bit before, but off this podcast, but having the Mormon faith as as kind of a a, a big motivating factor for how this story gets told and the lens through which you're viewing a lot of uh the different cultural marriages and stuff is a really interesting thing. And I think it's because the representation of Mormonism in the wider culture, especially in the literary world, is most often told through pretty dramatic storylines, mm-hmm. uh, specifically surrounding um, FLDS stories of of yesteryear. Uh, a lot of like the mainline TV shows that have been made like Under the Banner of Heaven. The trend is that most Mormon stories are horrifying yeah you know absolutely. what i mean like sensationalized they're, they're pretty and, yeah yes yeah, sensationalized how did you feel i mean because you just said like the the first draft wasn't you know you kind of were keeping that behind curtains a little bit and then fleshing it out more was some of that because of just like the media's representation of mormonism Absolutely. You know, I've I've learned through the years, you know, if someone asks me where I'm from, I say Boston instead of Utah, because I don't want to talk about like a very complicated, you know, situation at the bar. Like no one wants to hear about that at the bar. You know, so so yeah, there was um, there was that. But I think what I had to come to terms with is I set out to write about my experience and my experience alone. And I certainly include critiques, you know, like I just mentioned sort of with that, you know, dedication and, and you can see on the page like you know, I, I have been harmed by a lot of these things, but it's not just the bad. Um, and so, and I hope Mormonism isn't the most important part of my story. You know, it's, I try oh, no. to show like a nuanced experience, the good and the ugly from my own like specific lens. And, and yeah, and I really appreciate, I, I even appreciate that you made a distinction between LDS and FLDS because most people don't even know that those are different. So most <laughs> people think like, oh, Mormons are still like doing you know, a lot of the polygamy thing, which is fine. Like, again, I've got my critiques and like plenty of anger off the page. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't really see nuanced representations in the way that I wrote. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen a representation in the mass media that reflects anything like what I grew up with. And I think, yeah, there is sort of an appetite for um, farce, sort of like the Book of Mormon musical, like catchy, catchy stuff, but like also complicated. 
conservative characters like the uber like republican mitt romneys and i always have to clarify like i didn't vote for him like no you know um or yeah these murder polygamy drama series but i think what's maybe like most problematic i think everyone's got the right to like create you know whatever art but almost all of these are written by people who have never been mormon and it really shows and like the kind of details they get like so like cringy wrong and so I think what I want are just more stories that reflect the people that I know and love in my community. Like, where are the Mormon atheists represented? Like, that's a thing. Where are the Mormon feminists? It's not an oxymormon. Um, oh, that was a funny slip. An oxy. I should. I do an essay collected. <laughs> it's not an oxy. Yeah, yeah that, that's an anthology just <laughs> totally. waiting to happen. Um, you know, I'm the editor of a of a feminist magazine called Exponent Two for more for for women and gender minorities across the Mormon spectrum. And that was founded 50 years ago. Like we're not like this isn't new. And you know, again, like where are the stories of like trans and queer and BIPOC Mormons? Like I want to hear more of their stories, their hurts and their pains and their joy in their own words. And Mormonism, of course, like any faith community, has a culture alongside the literal religious beliefs. And there's just this whole spectrum of experience and people can speak for themselves, you know, kind of a thing. No, I think that's so cool. Because I mean, even in even in the ways that I want to tell my story in a future book or future books or whatever, I, I mean, I think like growing up a pretty fundamentalist evangelical like, there's no way to, like, escape that growing up and kind of what it did to me psychologically. I'm not talking about schizophrenia, but just kind of, like, the the ways that I interpret culture or the world or people <laughs> and relationships. Like, those were all fundamentally driven by this growing up experience that I had with faith and later years becoming kind of part of the ex-evangelical crowd, which is made up of both atheists and people that are still Christian, but that have left, like, the kind of the dogmatic points of of evangelicalism and those stories don't get told a lot and it, and there's a huge culture that's growing out of these ex-evangelical communities of people leaving the faith or staying in the faith but leaving the the primary tenets and the, the progressivism that happens within religion I don't think a lot of people are super familiar with it because I think in some sense cultures interpretations of mormonism and evangelicalism of catholicism is all very static it's always like the base level the most reactionary forms of those religions mm -hmm. are what gets represented Absolutely. um and yeah i just i hope that as readers but as as viewers of movies and tv and and the wider culture like more stories are important because it it fundamentally disarms i think even the harshest communities, because it shows that there's so much more variations in these places than people want to admit. And I think just viewing these things as complex as they can be and as they should be viewed is, is really like the best way that we can handle these types of stories. Yeah, that's really well said. Speaking of this specifically, though, was there any kind of backlash from people that you grew up around or anyone that you were telling a, a more progressive part of your faith, a more progressive story than probably a lot of your peers would have had? Was there any, I'm just curious, was, <laughs> how, was the, how was the reception of what you wanted to say and the critiques that you had? I'm honestly shocked. I mean, it's only six months, so there's still time, <laughs> you know, but um, normally, especially when I've published more short form things, like, you know, in the Washington Post or whatever, you know, I... I get all kinds of wild comments from both ends of the spectrum. My big thing is like, I'm just kind of allergic to orthodoxy, like on both ends. I see like the orthodoxy of just like, how dare you exist? Um, and also like, you're not Mormon like me, you know, kind of like these sort of comments and hate mail. I have not gotten that with this book. And 
I don't know if it's kind of the magic of just a long form of just like, nope, I'm going to I'm going to sit here and tell you, you know, for like 85,000 words, my experience. And like, you're welcome to argue with me about my experience. But like, it's my experience, (laughs) you know, there's something, um, you know, and so, yeah, I've been surprised, you know, people that I grew up with, um, you know, who are you know, definitely just so much more traditional in their beliefs, like really positive responses and people, you know, who, you know, I, I'm already kind of probably like, you know, kind of guess where I'm at on the spectrum anyway, but, you know, but even just like the people who would be just like, you know, how, how dare you say anything positive about Mormonism? It's caused me so much harm. You know, I also haven't had that response. So I think there's something really cool about the long form about memoir as a genre. And, and, you know, and again, it took eight years to write this. And so, yeah, that the reception like that has been really moving and surprising and it's it's really great to also hear messages from people coming out of the woodworks to say that they related to my ambivalence because I thought I was so alone and it's great to realize like I was so <laughs> not alone and then you know and I think like I totally like the day I got a Kirkus starred review I just totally cried I didn't even know what it meant I had to google what it meant um but apparently like Kirkus is just super grumpy and in the review sphere but they let me know that like only two to three percent of indie books get this distinction and so I'm just like really damn proud of that you know and, and it was like such a wild like publishing journey and so so yeah so far so good um and I'm definitely a person who just like thinks like okay everything's gonna go bad and so I am pleasantly so far, very surprised and grateful for people who've engaged with my story. That's great. I think it's also, I think one of the things I'm trying to keep in mind in my writing journey, and it's probably something that you, I would assume, have related to in the last six months of your book being out in the world, is like less people will read it than you think, or like less people that you're concerned about reading it will read it, and more people that you, you're not even perceiving will read it will read it. It's just kind of like when you pitch a book, you're trying to predict what the audience is going to be for the book. And it's a very imperfect prediction. And um, so true. So, yeah, I mean, working on a, a little story right now about my growing up years of, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I, I, I'm so scared that someone will read it. And it's like, possibly zero people from my upbringing right. will read this. Yeah. Book. <laughs> also possible that like someone that grew up in a similar way will read this and gain a lot from it. So it's like he, the audience is it's so hard to envision what they're going to be. Absolutely. But if you're part of the nonfiction book pitching process, you have to literally sit down and try and predict who it's going to be. Yep. They want to they want to see you've thought about it. But yeah, all, all things go to shit, basically. If I <laughs> yeah. I am curious what the um, the publishing process was like for you. I mean, this is like we've said, this book is it extends beyond a, a singular view of genre. So kind of you ended up with a um, small independent press. And I, I looked them up a little bit this morning and they're a nonprofit press, which is even rarer in the indie so <laughs> indie rare. publishing scene. So, so how did you end up with this publishing house and, and kind of what would like what was the journey along the way for you to get to that point? Yeah, this was public getting this published was a total roller coaster. And 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 we've chatted about this offline too, but um yeah, when I first cold pitched to agents, I I suddenly ended up with five offers of representation, and I thought, woohoo! Like all my dreams are coming true. This is you know what I was, you know, hoping would happen, and 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 so I I picked one agent, and we did a round of first round of submissions to all the big houses, and the responses were so wild. They were so positive. They read like acceptances, and then, but they weren't, and so they ultimately passed, citing you know they were worried about it selling, which you know that's a that's a platform thing, but also 
something to the effect of like, too bad about the Mormon thing, <laughs> which, you know, as we just talked about, like, that was actually an integral part of the story. It's not the point of the story, but it, realizing it was an integral part. So I actually ended up making like a bingo card during the submission process to cope. And I just like put the Mormon thing at the beginning. And every time someone said something about that, I just ticked it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Yeah, it surprised me since I, I did not write this, you know, again, thinking about that audience thing, I did not write this for a Mormon audience. And I certainly workshopped it with people who didn't identify that way or were, and were not religious at all. And so in some ways, you know, and who really knows, but I think if maybe I would have had a different religious upbringing, it might have had a better chance of going mainstream. But it's because, again, it's not devotional. It's not really about Mormonism. It just kind of shows this heightened experience. And the stakes were higher just because of this protagonist and just like sheesh. But in the end, yeah, I went I went the small press route and that was totally the right call. It was so wonderful to find the teams excited about this book as I was. And by Common Consent Press, they, yeah, again, they're a nonprofit. They almost operate more as like a collective, as a like a cohort, where, you know, if East Winds does well, then that means they'll have more funds to be able to bring on, you know, a poet who might only sell t- like 20 copies of their book, but at least it has a chance. And so I really love like my like, <laughs> that's, you know, I just, I just love that community aspect. So yeah, it's interesting to compare it. Like I just sold a novel and a two book deal recently with a New York publisher and it was much like straighter and smooth. You know, there's no Mormon inside, so that helps. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I the bingo card didn't exist. No for bingo that card, one. but you know, it'll be really interesting. I'm sure some things will be nice and some things will be not as great. And I think it just goes to show there's a place for both. But I think there's just something to really be said. And I know you advocate for this too, which is why I just adore you. But like, there, there's really something to be said of the smaller presses who are not like slaving so hard for the capitalist machine of publishing. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm really grateful for where it ended up. Well, in the I mean, in just in the process of uh, reading the amount of books that I do, but also looking into getting my own book published and, and for you having a book out in the world and working on the second and the third. And, you know, it's just a startling, I think, realization from the idealized version of what publishing a book is when you're younger of like, wow, this is an art form and people are going to treat me as an artist. And you are like, no, you are a salesman trying to sell a story to basically a corporation like this is like it is so cut and dry a business procedure that is not like sure you have to be a talented writer and and a self-editor and understand how stories flow and all of those types of things that come with the artistry of writing but you are a salesman and it's a wild kind of i think it's a reckoning with with kind of what it is as an art form and what it is becoming i think too is with like the acquisitions of the big five or or them trying to even (laughs) consolidate their own publishing houses together is, yeah, it's certainly just like, it's getting so almost sterile in some sense. Like it's just, uh, it's, it's a wild thing to try and understand that. I do want to get into a little bit of outside of just the writing and the pitching process, but into the book a little bit. And I have to say, I think, you know, this. my favorite part of the book is your time in Spain. And it's because I have always wanted to do the uh, the pilgrimage that you went on, the Camino de Santiago, which is a uh, religious pilgrimage, but that a lot of people of all different faiths and of no faith uh, have done for generations. It's um, quite famous. And it actually was made into, there's a movie about people walking the Camino de Santiago called The Way with, uh, it's uh, Emilio Estevez and... Uh, yeah, Martin Sheen. Good stuff. Yeah, Martin so Sheen. good. And it's a weird little movie because it's like, 
my curiosity with the movie is like, how did this get made? How did they get a budget for it? Because it's such a like a quiet little meandering movie. But I absolutely am in love with that movie ever since I saw it back in like 2013 or 14 ish. I was just like, I saw it and I was like, oh my God, I like, this is a movie no one's heard of. And I have to tell every single person about it. I am curious when you went on the Camino de Santiago, had you seen the movie beforehand? Did that like play any role in deciding to go on that walk? I like, I already had the idea because I had a friend who had walked in. So I was like, oh, um, you know, this is an affordable um, and meaningful way to see <laughs> Spain. Um, the money's, yeah. the money was gone. Um but then I, the minute I watched the movie, and then I was just really, really, really excited. I love that movie, and I've shared it with a lot of my loved ones who were like, "Why are you walking from France to the coast of Spain?" You know, and just like watch this great movie. So that that movie's done a lot of a lot of good good things for me. But yeah, I'm glad that you say that because the Camino section is also my favorite part of the book too. It is also um, the only part of the book that I would say has a little bit of body horror in it uh, because you decided. Which is a wild decision, I have to say. And I think you recognize this after the fact. You decided to hike it in hiking sandals, uh, which is, obviously, you allude to it in the book, not a great choice. It was a very bad choice. <laughs> Basically, my like the book is like what not to do on the Camino de Santiago. Yeah. yeah, that first day through the Pyrenees, didn't know there'd be snow. There was snow there. I have got, I've got this great picture of me and Austin um, that someone took like our, our ponchos got just like torn to shreds from the wind. They were just like those cheap, like, you know, like two Euro poncho deals. And so at one point we took off the ponchos and used them as sleds to slide down the mountain. And there's like a picture of me and my sandals. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I have looked through some of the pictures from your traveling and you always seem so happy. And I know there is a, three seconds after the uh the camera clicks that it's like what well, this is actually pretty miserable this is which is kind of what the book alludes to was how difficult this was and i'm probably with a little bit more preparation it wouldn't have been quite as difficult but it is so funny because this this honeymoon is a year-long trip but it was absolutely on a pretty slim budget i i'm curious what you would like to say about uh, traveling without much funds and kind of how it led to the different locations that you chose and, and what uh, just traveling on a budget was like. Yeah, you know, in some ways, and again, hindsight is like, you know, it helps a lot. But um, what it meant is I wasn't just like touring around. One of those people was just like, I'm going to see 50 countries in this amount of time because it's really expensive to move around. And so what it meant was sitting down, finding like a re like an apartment that I could rent for, you know, a year and a half of not a year and a half, a month and a half or so. And and really having a chance to have that experience in the community, you know, embedded rather than, you know, trying to go and see everything. And so it also meant not doing things in advance. Like, you know, if you go online right now and say, okay, I'm going to stay somewhere for two months in Chiang Mai, Thailand, you would get a certain price doing that from your computer. But if you do what I did and you just like roll off the train and you go door to door to like 20 different like guest houses and find like what's the best room, what's the best price, you're going to get a better price. than you know, so this is a place where procrastinators can thrive a little bit. But yeah, so I, I was mainly in uh, Cusco, Peru, Chiang Mai, Thailand, uh, Bangalore, India, and then, uh, yeah, and then again, the Camino, which is just, um, you know, that's like $50 a day for two people. Um, at the time, that was in 2014. But you know, like, I, my life is certainly more expensive now than it than it was then. And so it's it's wild to think about it. Are there any, especially since writing this book and having out in the world and, and some of the interactions that you've had with readers, is there any of the locations that you traveled to that 
have stuck out to you personally or that you've had a lot of reception and had to kind of rethink in some way that like this just like I said the Camino was the favorite part for me just because of you know it takes place a little bit later in the book and it, and kind of all of the collective parts of the story are coming together and there's obviously you know walking for 500 miles is a pretty internal thing like physically sure it's a difficult process but internally you're just left up to thinking, you know, for, yeah. for hours and hours Too a much day. thinking sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Has any of your interpretations of those locations changed over time? Yeah, you know, one thing I'm I'm really grateful for is, again, just I stuck so much to my personal experience. So even though I, you know, was excited to learn about other cultures, it was never my intention to, like, essentialize anyone. And I'm really, like, the, the main people in this story, I'm still extremely close with. Um, you know, I think a lot about about India and I do I, like I already know, like there was one error I made. I said that we were eating like chicken briyani and we weren't. We were eating something veg because it was a Hindu holiday and I messed that up. And I will like go to the grave <laughs> so mad because I was so careful about this stuff. And, you know, but the, to me, these weren't just, you know, kind of passing people to like kind of get a good story. My my friend Chaitra, he yeah. was um, one of the main characters in the India section. And I think talking about something as vulnerable as partnership and marriage and getting beyond you know, kind of the superficial things that, you know, we often kind of get, we were bound to be close, but she just moved to the the U.S. and I just took her to New York. And it was so fun, like after like her being able to show me her country uh, to be able to show mm-hmm. her mine. And she just loved New York. We're just like all these pictures on the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, but it's um, <laughs> that's so cool. But yeah, I, I was I was really grateful through the writing of the process to be able to go to my friends and and to be able to say like, hey, can you look at this? Can you look at this? Um, and and again, just like very much framed through me um you know there's there's a limitation to the eye and there's also a power in the eye because i'm not you know trying to claim more authority than i have <laughs> it was in india that you kind of volunteered at a bookshop mm-hmm. yeah i really love that because part of this traveling is not i mean when you think of a honeymoon trip i mean the the kind of the stereotypical honeymoon trip is you go to a resort you lay on the beach you drink and have sex for for seven days and then you just come back to real life and like that's that's kind of it that was the honeymoon good on you your traveling is a, a long long hike and then also volunteering in places interviewing people i mean it's kind of just living a life i mean it is a honeymoon and in, in like the nature of it but it's also you're just kind of transitioning into like a very new phase of life and it's such a unique story and um I also just loved like the really little quiet moments of the work that you were doing or just like the people that you were meeting because it's a honeymoon that is also not a honeymoon. And it's it's like like a sour patch moon. Yeah. yeah, When you're pitching this story to people and you're like, it's a honeymoon travel story. It's like, I am guessing some of the uh, like from people that, you know, didn't read it or haven't read it or whatever when you say it's a honeymoon travel story, people probably have a very different oh, totally. version of this They're story They're probably thinking resorts and trust fund baby and just like all these yeah. wild things. It's like, no, no. <laughs> like, let me tell no, you no. about like honeymoon in like a mass dormitory with like people snoring and fart, you know, just like, yeah, yeah. this is not, it's romantic in its own way. We'll say that. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, there's a romanticization of it that is certainly uh, slightly different than I think the, like I said, the stereotype of, of honeymoons. Right. I have spent some time in Brazil and close to the Amazon being in South America for as long as I had been. When I think about traveling and I think of like, if I could just like disappear for six months into like a location or a culture, I think a, a lot of people in, in the US 
and specifically white people in the U.S. would be like, yeah, I'm going to France. I'm going to like I'm going to England or Ireland or whatever. For me, if I like if I had to just like disappear for a few years and just like have some quiet time away, South America instantly, because it's just such a beautiful landscape that is just I mean, it's it's so it's so different than what we have in the United States. And it's also just not a place that many people travel to. Like it's it's not a very popular travel location from the people in my environment or that I've interacted with. Um, How did you come come to choose uh, going to the Amazon in Peru? Yeah, you know, in some ways it was kind of a, a push and a push and pull. You know, Austin really like he really cared about rainforest conservation, and so you know the Amazon was where he really wanted to go. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't even know. Sometimes it was just like so luck of the draw. I just knew that Cusco was a really fascinating place because it was, you know, it wasn't just like um, you know, Lima is wonderful for a lot of ways, but. In Cusco, you still have that Inca identity and you and you see it and you feel it. And so I wanted I, d- I just wanted to get a sense for that. You know, Quechua was like more like popular than Spanish, um, you know, and so that's that's just so unique to me. And and so there was that Chiang Mai. I just heard really great things like it's wild how much of this was just like, OK, where can I afford and where have I heard good things about uh, Bangalore? Austin had an internship. And so, you know, we did some, something professional for him because I had like my my kind of project that I was working out. And so giving us something for him. And then, yeah, the the Camino was just like, yeah, we're we're out of money. Like what we care about is like doing meaningful things, you know, really embedding ourselves in the community. And so that, yeah, we didn't want to be like, I mean, we could have probably spent the same amount of money for like a week and a half in in Paris, <laughs> which would have been lovely. I'm sure I would have eaten delicious cheese. Um, but I ate delicious <laughs> yeah. cheese anyway, and 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 made some incredible friends. So, if there was if there was just one of the locations you had to return to for you know a year, you know, go you're going to go write your next book, and you're just you're going back. Where along your journey would you would you like to go back to to revisit? Such a hard question. Honestly, I want to go. I can't believe this. And it's like, what does this mean? I thought I had like worked through my relationship to struggle and suffering as an identity. I thought I'd worked through that, but I'm like, I want to do the Camino again. Like, take me back. Yeah, <laughs> take me back. Um, but for writing, yeah, I would definitely go back to Chiang Mai. Just like, oh my gosh, the flowers, the people, the food. Just um, yeah, the landscape. It, it's mm. it's unrivaled. It's stunning. Along the way of writing this book and having the book out in the world. I'm curious if there's any travel uh, memoirs or just travel stories that you've really latched onto that you've really loved. And certainly with being able to like have your own interpretation as someone that's written one, I think that like builds on the level of like how you understand the story and, and how it was written and how it was, you know, pitched along the way. But has there any been any travel stories that have really like stuck out to you in, in the, the last few years? Oh, I mean, this is where I'm like, I turn to you. Like, are there any I should be reading? Um, like, you would know. Um, yeah, I, I don't, like, most of my memoirs, this is not a travel memoir, but it is in a lot of ways. I just finished reading Solito by Javier Zamora. And and this is, again, like, the power of, I think, like, nonfiction. I've read so much about border crossings, you know, from, from Mexico or, you know, the civil, you know, all that stuff um, from essay lenses, from fiction lenses, um, you know, from just like hybrid lenses, so many, but I've never read a first person experience of what it was like to actually cross the border as an eight year old boy who hmm. like couldn't even tie his shoes yet. And that book was stunning, um, just absolutely stunning. It's a memoir, so it only covers like seven weeks. You know, it's not Zamora's whole life, but that experience crossing the desert I'm just I like after I finished reading that I just stared for like 10 minutes it was like weeping and I think this gets a little bit mm. back to sort of like 
our earlier conversation, but so much of our stories, I think, tend to be like sensationalized. Like we think readers need that, you know, and and I was just mm-hmm. like weeping because of just like the power of just like human resilience and the beauty and kindness of strangers to this little mm-hmm. boy. And like I didn't need like someone getting their head blown off and I didn't need like the stakes to be even higher, like the stakes and just like the audacity and the power of that eye through that child's lens and knowing it was a real story. Like for the listeners, can you can you say the uh, the title and the author again for us? Yeah, it's called Solito by Javier Zamora. I want to also touch on we've talked about it a little bit, but like the sensationalized nature of telling a story. I mean, ultimately, writing a memoir is editing down thoughts and ideas. You know, you're not you're not just reproducing your journal in almost every circumstance of writing a memoir. And so you have to pick and choose how to tell the story and how to interpret your own past and how to try and, you know, interpret yourself to an audience, which is a, a, a long and like very internalized process that has a lot of difficulty to it, but your story isn't sensationalized. I was going to say like in any real sense, there's, there's moments of drama. There's moments of, of questioning your own kind of faith in your process of, of thinking through these things, but sensationalizing a story doesn't actually, I don't think really benefits the reader in so many ways because it, it denies them a lot of the, the mundane parts of life that are actually kind of some of the most beautiful points. And that's something that I really enjoyed about your book was just like, uh, like I said, you, you were just like volunteering in a bookshop in India and it's, and it's those types of like little quiet moments of life and the friendships that you build along the way that really like, I think stick out to a reader because they're so there's something you can envision and it's something that you could, you could see or want to have in your own life. And I think part of the writing process was a, a probably an intentional way to tell the story. And I'm not saying like it's a boring or anything like that, but to not make the story try and become the next like huge New York Times, what a crazy travel memoir this is. Like your story is really, uh, there's so many things happening, but it's also very quiet and internal at the same time. Can you just tell me kind of how how that came to be? And I think I I think I know because the the book alludes to it kind of towards the end of like you were just kind of collecting your thoughts during this whole process. Mm, so yeah. what I just kind of why why the book is not sensational in a very positive way. Yeah, you know, and may, maybe it's my kind of like essayistic training, but I just feel like again, I'm just so allergic to simple stories, like, and, and I'll read them. and I enjoy that, you know, in, in a lot of ways. But for myself, you know, I feel like you can like come out with some bold statement. And then it's like, well, is it true? Are you sure it's true? You know, and so like, there is sort of like a questioning. And this book is, if anything, just like a questioning, lots of questioning, lots of questioning happening. And, and yeah, and, and it's the journey of this, this narrator going on, you know, and, and really addressing head on these questions. And so you know, I think in in some sense it is quite like that. And even as you say that, you know, I was thinking like, oh, you know, if if my goal would have been, you know, you know, just something wild, you know, if I would have, you know, scrapped all this and be like, let me tell you 10 crazy things I learned, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, right. about marriage being indoctrinated, you know, like then, you know, I would have gotten some <laughs> clicks, but it wouldn't have been as meaningful. Um, yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I'm happy for, for the way it turned out. But it but it is fascinating, you know, having written mostly nonfiction my whole life and, and now trying my hand at fiction just um, in part because I was writing a climate crisis book and I got so depressed and it's like, I need to visit someone else's problems. <laughs> like 300 years ago, there's a lot of problems. Um, and my first time writing a scene where someone dies and feeling the power of like, I am literally sensation. Like I am, 
I just killed someone. <laughs> and like I had to talk about in therapy, like I have just killed someone to like make a reader feel something and I feel dirty, oh, no. you know, um, it's different. It's really different. But yeah, um, I think our storytelling culture at a, at a baseline, not all, of course, not all, but you know, there is kind of reliance on the sensational. You're alluding to your, your writing, um, you're writing a fiction book, which I, I don't want to get into spoilers. I am very much looking forward to it and, and please do. Uh, send me a copy of it. I know I'm not the fiction reader that most people think. I do read a bit of it though, so I'm I'm very excited to read what you you are working on. But I am curious what you've been reading, just like just in your life, uh, aside from the book that you wrote or anything mm-hmm. like that. Just what what's been catching your eye recently? Fiction, nonfiction, anything stick out to you? Yeah, I'm I'm a lover of all genres, but right now my reading is probably falling into two buckets. You know, the first again is just memoir. I am I'm so compelled by memoir right now, you know, for the reasons I just shared with reading Solito. Um I've recently started on my social media channels just, you know, doing like memoir Mondays because I think there's just such a such a fascinating perception of like what memoir is or that nonfiction is somehow boring or like all these things. And so I, you know, and again, I really appreciate how you how you champion this genre because it's just like, no, this is so awesome. And so I'm, yeah, I'm reading a lot of memoirs. I also recently read um, Uncultured by Daniel um, Daniela Mestianic. Have you heard of this one yet? I is this the this is the memoir of uh, growing up. Um, I mean, I'll let you explain it, but this is the memoir of growing up, kind of in the military and and religion, and kind of like how those intersect and intertwine. Yeah, it's, you know, just kind of like one of those horrific cult kind of growing up and then she joins the military and it's like, oh, the military is also a cult. And so her her big thing is just <laughs> yeah. like looking at behavioral. Um, yeah, just looking at like group behaviors. Um, she's a scholar of that now. But anyway, so it's a memoir. Um, always fascinated by memoir. And I think the other thing. I've been really interested in is trauma, like uh, the of like trauma on the body. A strange thing happened when I went to record my audiobook for East Winds, which again it had been eight years. I can tell you every sentence in this thing, like it is vulnerable, but it is not raw. Like that is a long time. Um, but then I start reading um, in the recording studio chapter four, and it's the chapter where I start talking about all those messages that I had received as um, a young girl about this being, you know, the most important thing I could do. And I had a panic attack. And I was just like, what is going on? My director was was really kind and just sort of like, you know, walked me through a meditation. We were able to come back to it and I and I finished it. But but that really surprised me. I'm just like, wait a minute. Like, I've processed this. I've written a book about this. Like I, you know, and even here, she's like, I can be podcast Rachel. I know what I think. I know what I feel. I know I'm <laughs> yeah. an agent over my life. Why am I still reacting this way? And so I just finished reading two books that I think are really fascinating in conversation with each other. One is The Body Keeps the Score and the other is My Grandmother's Hands. And, and you know, and, and one is more, you know, kind of about race and like collective trauma and another is just kind of like about that individual experience. But like I am just kind of learning how to get in touch with my body and just realizing like as powerful as stories are, it's still cerebral. And it's like, what do I do with this body and how do I move through the really tricky things from my life? So. Anyway, those are yeah. those are kind of where I'm at right now. That sounds really fascinating. I, I'm gonna have to check out the social media to to follow along with what you've been reading and stuff. That's that's exciting. Uh, I do whenever I have an author on, I do ask this question, and uh, it kind of puts you on the spot. But I am curious if you have any question for me as as the reader of your book. Was there is there anything you would like to know about you know my reading experience or interpretation of uh, of a thing or anything like that? I'm just curious if there's anything you've got for me. Oh yeah. No, I I've got 
this is my chance to ask all the questions. And this and this might be a pivot, <laughs> but one thing I'm really interested in, like I know, I think more or less why I love nonfiction. I love that you champion nonfiction. What brought you specifically to nonfiction as a genre that you you read and interact with so deeply? Um, you know, and obviously, you know, thank you for reading my book, but thank you for reading like hundreds of other people's <laughs> memoirs. And so I'm just curious, like, yeah. yeah, what was it? What was it that brought you to this? I think just like I think from an early age, one of the things that like was a pretty heavy part of growing up was the censorship that happened with the with the media that I consumed. Like I, there was a lot of things, you know, the stereotypical answer. I wasn't allowed to watch Power Rangers as a kid or Dragon Ball Z and and the books that I was allowed to read. Like, I, you know, I couldn't read the Harry Potter series, which, you know, fuck those books now. But I wasn't allowed to read mm-hmm. those until I was, you know, almost 18 years old. And so the fiction stories that I could even consume were were largely dictated by uh, what my pastor or what my parents or what my school said I could read. And so I had this kind of early proclivity towards nonfiction, even so much that I would read like, you know, I would read reference books just to like learn more things. Mm. And I've always kind of had this like, you know, kind of insatiable desire to read nonfiction and just like learn things. And also with like constantly being at war with my environment, with like the fiction that I was allowed to read my choice wasn't to necessarily rebel and read those anyways. My choice was typically to to start reading history books, you know, as a middle schooler, which is, you know, such a weird nerdy thing that I did. But yeah, it, it started early. And then when I got to college, I wanted to become a history and philosophy major because it was just I got to experience college through mostly reading books. You know, it was, you know, essay writing and those types of things. And I wrote the papers and, you know, there were some tests, but mostly a lot of my education was just surrounding what I was reading. And that's just where I kind of flourished. And now with, you know, the, my adult life and developing schizophrenia, something I'm always trying to do is make sense of the world and make sense of my own life and test my knowledge of reality versus my personal psychotic interpretations of reality. And so nonfiction just perfectly blends into this way of where I can like learn more things and cement the world in even more facets. And, um, as much as fiction is an expansive genre that there's always new subgenres to read and there's new stories to consume, nonfiction is the same way. And and the, like I can never, I can never get enough of it. And really, like the biggest complaint that a lot of us readers have is like we can never read the books that we want to in a lifetime. There, there's there's it just takes too much time to read books to ever be able to read the you know forty thousand books. But I think it's just I think it's just a combination of censorship with my illness and and just I think there is just like a natural part of me that just like I want to learn everything mm. um which is I love it I think in a lot of ways and made me like a very annoying teenager like I'm I'm gonna say this for anyone that thinks I'm like a cool you know 30 year old guy now I was a awful teenager <laughs> like I was just like constantly questioning and remarking on my my history teacher like constantly telling him I was wrong and stuff so uh, there is a bad side to being like a voracious reader and consumer of knowledge, uh, but hopefully I'm doing it in like a little bit more appropriate way now. Yeah, it is. It is not this day. It is not this day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we're so, so grateful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that was really amazing to hear yeah. that journey. Yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed your book and I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, where can people find you online? I have a website, rachelrukert.com, um, that kind of lists out um, East Winds and also my forthcoming novels. I've got a newsletter. 
and just anywhere books are sold, you can find East Winds and um, the audiobook is on Audible. So I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. I'll link in the show notes to your social media and to your um, your newsletter and where people can purchase your book. Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to let you guys know this podcast is edited by Tone Support. For more help with your podcast needs, go to tone.support. Thank you to my patrons on Patreon for helping support this podcast and all of my creative work. Special thanks to Aaliyah, Marilyn, and Emily. If you would like to support me and get exclusive content and premium episodes, go to patreon.com slash schizoreads. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe and share this podcast on social media. Tag me in it. I love seeing the shares and I will reshare it as well. The next author I'll be talking to is Emily Maloney. Her book, The Cost of Living, is a creative and brilliant exploration through essays of her interactions with the horrifying healthcare system. So come back next week and we will rant and rave about how bad the U.S. healthcare system is. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much. More soon. Take care, everyone. And we'll talk to you guys later. Music